For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now being revealed by the Spirit to God's holy people and holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of this glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, we watched a movie a couple of weeks ago. Some of you may have seen it. Operation Mince Meat is the name of the movie. It's the story about one of the more bizarre things that happened during the Second World War. Now, here's the spoiler alert. If you are planning on seeing this at some time in the future, put your fingers in your ears and just hum quietly to yourself for a moment because I'm about to blow the plot here. 
Uh, the British intelligence came up with this idea to get the Germans to believe that they were going to do an attack in Europe and they were going to do it through Greece. Uh, and they weren't planning on doing that. They were planning on a, an attack elsewhere. So this was the plan, to get a dead body from the morgue in London, to dress it up as an English soldier on a secret mission, handcuff a briefcase to this dead body with fake battle plans involving going to Greece. They were then going to drop the body into the Mediterranean Sea just off the coast of Spain and hope that the currents would take the body to where the fishermen in Spain would be operating, that they would find it, and then they were hoping even more that the body would be taken back to Spain and somehow the Germans would find out about it and see the plans. Now, it didn't take, it took the, the hierarchy quite a long, it took a long time to convince the hierarchy in the army that this was a good plan. And it's not hard to understand why. I mean, it sounds completely bonkers, doesn't it? Getting a dead body and dropping it in the sea and hoping that it washes over to where the fishermen are. But eventually they got permission and even more amazingly, the plan worked. Now, we come this morning to a section of Ephesians where Paul explains his part in what he calls the mystery. And I have a funny feeling that if this plan, if this mystery had been unfolded to people to get their approval, um, it would have been seen as being completely ridiculous as well. Now, at the end of chapter 2, Paul was saying that Jews and Gentiles are now united as one family, one church, because of what Jesus has done. And at the end of chapter 2, he says that the dividing walls that separated us have now been taken away through Jesus, and anyone can become a part of God's people by faith in Jesus. And then chapter 3 starts like this. For this reason, I, Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the, sake of the, of the gospel, for the sake of the Gentiles. Paul, a Jewish man, has devoted himself to ensuring that the, that the Gentiles get to hear this good news about Jesus, that everyone is welcome to become part of God's kingdom. And it's as though he kind of interrupts himself there because he sort of gets halfway through a sentence and then seems to stop to talk about something else. After making that statement in verse number one, we have five verses where he talks about this mystery. Three times he calls it the mystery. So why does he keep calling this thing about Jesus a mystery? Well, I think there's two answers to that question. The first one is, no one would have guessed that that was what God was going to do, not in a million years. But the second reason is, even if you do know what it is that God has planned to do, it still sounds absurd. See, at the time that Jesus was born, God's people, Israel, were waiting. They were longing for God to send a saviour one who would reclaim the throne in Jerusalem, re-establish the kingdom for God's people. They were waiting for a king, maybe on a horse, probably carrying a big sword and with an army behind him. And this king was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. 
Just like it was when King David and King Solomon were on the thrones, it would again be a great kingdom for God's people. But that's not what God did. God was thinking much bigger than simply a kingdom for Israel. And here's where the word mystery becomes appropriate. I mean, let's face it, when you try to explain this mystery about what it is that God has done through Jesus, it does sound a little bit far-fetched, doesn't it? Have you ever found yourself in that situation where you're explaining to someone what it is that you believe as a Christian and you're saying that, that Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins to enable us to have a relationship with God? And, and there's this little voice in your head saying, seriously? Are you, are you trying to convince this person that that's what happened? We've had 2,000 years to get our head around this and I think it still sounds unbelievable. The king came not to a palace but to a stable. The king came not to a throne in Jerusalem but to die on a cross just outside of Jerusalem. The king came but not to rescue us from our enemies he came to rescue us from sin and death. The king came, not as a man, but as a baby, born to a very ordinary family in a very underwhelming town called Nazareth. Paul and the people of Israel were expecting one thing and they got something completely different that they weren't expecting. I think it's safe to say that no one was expecting what God did. That's the mystery. That's what's been revealed to Paul. That's the mystery. In fact, the only way that you'll understand it is if God enables you to see the truth of this. But it goes one step further than that. God's plan is that his wisdom is revealed in the cross, in the death of Jesus, but God's plan is also Got your Bible there? Verse number 10. So that God's wisdom will be demonstrated through, wait for it, the church. That's what it says. Verse 10. His intent, that is God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's plan is that the church will be how God's wisdom is made known. God intends to grow the number of believers through the work of the church. And I can't help but think that if you had to come up with a plan, you'd, you'd get a better plan than that. I mean, seriously, have a look at the church. They're not doing a particularly good job. See, see, if I was God, I think I would have gone for something a little more aggressive, a little more confrontational, maybe a famine, uh, a meteor, you know, a few shots across the bow just to get their attention before bringing about the day of judgment. But God sends his son to be born as a baby to fulfill the plan. Jesus is going to enable people to be forgiven, enable people to be saved, enable people to become part of God's family. And then Jesus hands over the responsibility to us, to the church. I mean, that truly is a mystery, isn't it? What was God thinking? God's plan 
is that the church would be united, that it would demonstrate God's wisdom. And I always think it's a bit sad that the church just can't quite get its act together. It's sad that Christians don't always present the best advertisement for Christianity. We're not united. We're often on the wrong side of many of the issues in our society. We're not as generous as we could be. We don't always love God's people. And despite all of that, God's sticking with the plan. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not pointing the finger here. I know that I'm part of the problem with the church as well. But I think that's why Paul closes this section telling them what it is that he prays for the Ephesian Christians and, I dare say, for all Christians. Pick it up there in verse 16. I pray out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Seems to me there's three parts to that prayer. Christ dwelling in our hearts. He's praying that we would always be aware of who we are, that we'd always be conscious of the fact that we are followers of Jesus. And it's not just when we're sitting at home or sitting here at church that we should remember that. We should remember it when we're on the bus on the way to work. We should remember it when we're chatting to our neighbours. We should remember it when we're at the family gathering or mowing the lawn or heading up the road to grab a coffee. Every moment of every day, we should be aware that we are who we are because of Jesus. That's our trust in Jesus and that's how it should shape us. That shouldn't be a daunting thought. That should be something that we want for ourselves and that we want for everybody else. Second part of the prayer is that we will be established in love. Now that comes as no surprise. Jesus has already said that to his disciples on the night before he went to the cross, didn't he? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It should be the standout feature of the church. It should be the selling point, the thing that everyone can recognise in our church. And the third thing is this, that we would understand God's love. That we would understand what it is that God has done for us. Verse 18, that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Whenever I read what Paul says here about the role of the church here in Ephesians or in other parts of the New Testament, I can't help but feel that we've dropped the ball a little. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, 
his, that is God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. That's the plan. That through the church, everybody in heaven and on earth will see God's plan being worked out in the way that we love each other. When it comes to passages like this, and when you see the priority that God places on the church, the expectation that he has of the church, he clearly expects that we'll be making church a priority, these relationships that we have, that we should be committed to our church, that our relationship with others in the church should be important relationships for us, a priority, not just a casual thing. Can I say, if you don't feel that Campbell Street is a church where you can do that, then quite literally, for God's sake, find a church where you can, where you can feel that you love those people and that you want to be supported by them as well. And if you consider this your church then you ought to be committed to it. Committed to loving others, committed to loving those within the life of this church, committed to loving your neighbours enough that you would want them to become part of God's people. Committed to God's plan. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. So what could be the next step for you this week to be more committed to God's plan, committed to God's people here at Campbell Street? What practical step can you take to put into practice the things that Paul says here in this letter? That you might be able to be a part of demonstrating the wisdom of God to the people here in Balmain.